20th century ethicist and theologian Richard Niebuhr, the younger brother of the more famous Reinhold Niebuhr, for those keeping score at home, famously stated, the first response of humanity toward God is that of distrust. Although God is good to us, we do not trust God. As I lived and tossed and turned with that this week, I, I couldn't help but find myself agreeing with Niebuhr. When all is said and done, do we really, really trust God? I think of those times when I make myself crazy with being busy, with trying to hold everything together to make it look like I know what I'm doing. Those are times when I find myself trying to be God rather than trusting God. You know, when God's timeline just doesn't mesh with ours and we try to nudge things along a bit, make something happen, and it generally doesn't end well. But I'm not alone. You want to know who doesn't trust God? You want to know? Abram, that's who. In the Genesis reading, Abram does not trust God. Some nerve this guy. God brings him out of Ur, gave him many possessions and wealth, a new land to settle in, victory over his enemies, and Abram has the guts to, well, to doubt God. God has just promised him safety. I am your shield, he says, and prosperity. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham stops him. Sort of imagine him pulling him aside and saying, a word, my Lord, it's about my heir, my descendants. You see, Sarai and I are getting on in our years, and well, what about someone who will continue my legacy? Now that's not trusting God. But Abram doesn't stop there. God promises his descendants more numerous than the stars, and he promises him the land he's standing on, but Abram still doesn't trust him. About the land, he asks, uh, the, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I will possess it? More questions. I have to admit, I admire Abram's nerve, his chutzpah. Not just asking the questions, but insisting on the receipts, the proof. God instructs him to lay out a sacrifice. And that night, a flaming torch passes among the sacrifice, sealing the deal. And God makes a covenant with Abraham. Prosperous descendants and fertile land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of the Euphrates. And what does Abram get for his lack of trust? We're told a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. His descendants will be enslaved, tortured. They will suffer greatly. So this is a case of careful what you wish for, maybe in this case what you dream about. But Abram's lack of trust is an example of a different kind of faith. It's a faith that risks asking questions. And faith that gently challenges. And I think in our own lives, we often lack the imagination. We lack the daring in our dealings with God. We're fearful that asking God something will imply doubt. Which it does, but maybe even that's okay. And that by asking, we'll put God in a difficult spot. Or that we'll have erred in the asking itself. But I think one of the beautiful things about our faith is that we can be upset. We can challenge God. Bad things do happen to good people. You see, our God is big enough to handle our questions, our doubts, our challenges. Only as long as we wrestle through those with him 
and not try to do it on our own. Put another way, if we believe, we're told, and Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. He believed. Now, reckoned it to him as righteousness. What does that mean? Another translation from the message puts it, set right with God. Righteousness is set right with God. So Abram's trust in God's promise, his belief, makes him righteous, which makes him set right with God. On the psalm this morning, we hear more doubt, or maybe lack of it. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So a wonderful start to the psalm. Now he knows, the psalmist knows that bad things are likely to happen. He tells us that evildoers will assail him, that armies will encamp against him, that adversaries will try to take him over. So what does he do? Like Abram, he believes. The psalm closes with, I believe I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. We wait for the Lord. We believe. Abram's error, seeing this light, may not be so much that he doesn't trust in God, but maybe he's impatient with God. Like us, God's timetable is a little too slow for his taste. You know, could we speed things up a bit with this heir, this legacy? About that heir, he seems to be saying. Can we move things a little bit faster? Abram needs to hear the psalm's command. We need to hear the psalm's command. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And today's quirky gospel reading from Luke Jesus appears content to wait for the Lord. Now the chirpy, nervous Pharisees pretend to worry about his safety. They tell him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my work. Now in his autobiography, All About Me, My Remarkable Life in Show Business, Comedian and filmmaker Mel Brooks explains the satire in taking down evil. In this case, making fun of Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany in his hit movie, The Producers. Asked why he cast Hitler as the star of his musical within a movie, Springtime for Hitler, and Brooks replies, the only way to get even with anybody is to ridicule them. He said, so the only real way I could get even with Hitler and company was to bring them down with laughter. I imagine some of that same satire creeping into Jesus' words when he calls Herod a fox. Oh, that it must have stung the monarch, Herod Antipas. Now, Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, well, he had hoped to take over his father's empire in its entirety. But Rome gave him barely a quarter of it, and in fact, the less desirable bits, and stuck him with the title Tetrarch, which means ruler of the fourth which doesn't sound very good, does it? So he's bound by his insecurities and self-doubt, and Fox would have been particularly hurtful. Then Jesus goes on and directs the Pharisees, tell him I'm busy and then really can't be bothered. I've got healings and demons to cast out. Well, that too must have hurt. 
I imagine Herod Antipas is something like the Vladimir Putin of his day. Short of statures, maybe wearing lifts in his sandals and bemoaning the loss of an empire that never really was. Masquerading powerlessness and weakness with bravado and threats. Jesus' words put Herod in his place the way I think we had hoped Putin would back off and release Ukraine from his grasp. And sorry, that just felt good to say out loud. But a fox is sly and unprincipled, but still clever. A fox can do a lot of harm. Antipas executes John the Baptist and very nearly has Jesus' head, though in the end, Antipas loses his nerve. Even at his weakest, Jesus' righteousness triumphs over Herod, the imposter. Jesus worries most about Jerusalem, that city that murders its prophets. He laments its bloody past and, in anticipating his own death, is anxious about what he must endure there. Now, in due time, of course, but right now he wants to brood over the ancient city like a hen gathers her brood under her wings. I often say that the gospel is political, and nowhere more so than here, where Jesus tells the powerful Pharisees and Herod Antipas and all of Jerusalem to wait for what we know will be their undoing. They won't see him until they cry out, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the Jesus who says in the verse just before today's reading, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. You can't get more political than that. The Pharisees and the Herod, and Herod, masters of their universe, they're accustomed to calling the shots. Then as now they seeming, seem to be invulnerable with their oversized yachts, their constant corruption, and their dark money. But they're proud and they're cunning, their sly, foxy behavior. And in Jesus' words, they are reckoned to be last. Others will come before them in the emerging of God's kingdom. And at some level, I think they seem to know it. Their reach further and further expands past their grasp as they seek more power, more land, more empire, more, more. And it's tempting to cheer for their downfall. Now, the Germans have a wonderful word for taking delight in the misfortune of others. Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. It's so, well, so German. As tempting as it is to yearn for the misfortune of the oligarchs of all kinds in the world, well, that wouldn't be, well, that wouldn't be very Christian of it, would it? As much as we'd like it. But instead, we pray for them. We pray for all of them. Echoing the words we hear in today's collect, the second Sunday in Lent, we say, O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word, Jesus Christ. See, the glory and hope of Christianity are found in God's mercy and grace and in the constant call to us, to all of us, of repentance, penitence, and faith. Faith in the unchangeable truth of the living word who is Jesus Christ. That, 
we believe. That is worth waiting for. Amen.